Well, good morning. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 24, which we're not going to get into much today, but uh, I want you to be there this morning when we do. We are beginning to look over the next few weeks at Matthew 24, a thing called the Olivet Discourse. It's something that we're going to look at from a perspective that's probably totally different than what you were taught. And so I'm going to ask that you, before you tar and feather me, and when we go on through this study, that you think about what you've been taught and that you think about and you would study why you were taught it and that if you can stay with it and, and deal with it, understand it, uh, and believe it, that is great. That is wonderful. That is something that you uh, need to adhere to and go along. But I'm going to challenge it through the Scripture. And the reason I want to challenge it through the Scripture is for us to understand, could there be some things that are being postulated out there that may not be according to a strong biblical hermeneutic. For example, we have, uh, if you go and peruse the internet, you will find all kinds of stuff. Prophecy news, end time results, everything that you can imagine, it's going to be there. And basically, it's taking the news and things that happen in the news and placing it into a system of belief and saying these things therefore constitute that Jesus is returning and he's going to return. In fact, I read a survey this week of a thousand pastors, evangelical and black pastors, almost 60% believe that Jesus is going to return during their lifetime. Did you know what? That's 2021. Did you know in 1950? Over 60% of the pastors believe that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And most of those guys are dead. And Jesus has not returned during their lifetime. Now, I'm not one of those that are going to be saying to you that Jesus is not going to return. We have admonition in the scripture that Jesus is going to return. But I'm going to show you some things through these next few weeks from Revelation, from the Old Testament prophets that are going to bring us forth to this chapter that we're going to be studying. And we're going to see that some things are already fulfilled. They're not off into the future. They have already been fulfilled. And in fact, when you look at prophecy and understanding prophecy, you can fall into a category which you call futurist. That's where most people are. Everything is in the future. It's going into the future. When Matthew, speaking in chapter 24 and writing, the futurists believe that Jesus is talking about something 2,500 years later. Or you can fall into what we call preterist, which basically all that means is that in the past things were fulfilled. Everyone, believe it or not, even if you're saying you're a futurist, you are a preterist as well. Because there's over 500 prophecies that talked about Jesus coming as the Messiah. 332 of those were fulfilled when Jesus came. 
So therefore, since they came in the past, and it's happened in the past, you are in the preterist camp. Now, you may also be in the futurist camp as well, okay? But still, you have to admit that when Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given, and Jesus was born, was that fulfilled in the past? Yes, it was. And so therefore, we have to take these things into consideration. Now, today is going to sound more like a lecture than anything else, okay? Because I've got to give you a whole bunch of information today. You may want to ask me for these notes. We can give them to you, you know, these definitions. But you need to know the things about the millennial, the different views that are out there so we can begin to understand and put this chapter together. So I, so I want us to deal with that today, but I also want us to look at some principles of biblical interpretation because it's important so that you can understand what is going on in these chapters. You see, really the Olivet Discourse starts around Matthew 21 and then culminates through the end of chapter 25. And when you put all the things together in a biblical hermeneutic, you begin to start seeing and questioning things about what you may believe concerning the end times. I know a lot of you have been told this is what is going to happen without you studying and learning and, and looking at what the scripture has to say. I was one of those. I just believed at face value that all these things were going to happen uh, in the future. But when I began to start looking at it and seeing it, it was challenged by preachers concerning a biblical hermeneutic, whether I was sticking to it or not, it opened my eyes to some things that I just had some questions. So one of the things I'm going to ask you is to be open to questioning it's what I believe, really according to what the Scripture says. Okay? So, how are we going to start? Well, we're going to start with eschatology matters. I threw up a bunch of, bunch of slides for you uh, so that you will see it. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is eschatology? Most of you know, study of last things. That's what this is. This is Jesus and the last days. So, why is it important that eschatology matters? Well, because... Christianity embodies a message of redemption and hope. When I was given a young person uh, a few months ago, my opinion concerning the rapture, the teaching of the rapture, the teaching of the church, the historical thing of church, he says, well, well, if you don't believe in a rapture, he said, we have no hope. I said, no, 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 we do have hope. Do I believe that Jesus is coming back? Yes, yes, I do. But I believe there's going to be a general resurrection instead of a rapture. I do have a hope. And we have Christianity saying this is a message of hope and redemption. God's going to bring it all to fruition at the time that he is determined. Now, also your eschatology will determine how you read and interpret scripture. In other words, if you already have a preset a preset understanding that, oh, this is the way it is, then I'm going to interpret everything that I read according to that preset system. So that's one of the things that you have to understand. It determines how you read. It determines how you will interpret Scripture. 
Next thing is this. If you follow bad eschatology, you can become cultish. You can become cultish. What do I mean by that? Well, believe it or not, in one of these views that I'm about to show you, following different views concerning the end times, one particular is followed by the Mormon church and the Jehovah Witness church as well. It's one of those views. One of those views is held by evangelicals. And in fact, one of the reasons that Joseph Smith, you know, of Mormonism, went out to Utah when he laid his hands upon one of his quote-unquote elders and prayed over him, the guy starts prophesying, saying that during their lifetime, people here in this crowd, in this area of the United States, some of you will not taste death until Jesus comes again. And so they formed a tremendous theology and an eschatology based on that prophecy. And people bought it hook, line, and sinker. So if you follow bad eschatology, things that just are crazy, and folks, there are some crazy things out there, even in the evangelical world, you can become cultish. So we need to understand eschatology matters. So we're going to look at it, the four major views today. Let's start with the first one. This is a lot of stuff. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to look at it just real quick. First of all, there's amillennialism. Ah, or no millennial is basically what it's saying. Here's what it says. Christ established his kingdom in the first century as a spiritual redemptive reality. In other words... We're in the time of the present age is basically we are in this a thousand years. This is basically, they define it as a long period of time. The church is the focal point and the church will continue to grow and win many converts. So the present age is the millennial, but the church will decline into apostasy. Now, What is that? That means falling away. The church will fall away. They will become apostates. In other words, people who used to go to church and believers in church, they will drift away from the true belief. So the great tribulation and the Antichrist at that time will occur, but Christ comes, he destroys his enemies, he resurrects the dead, he judges all men, And then he establishes his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. That's basically what Amillennialism says. That's a major view in this. One of that. So let's look at the next one. Premillennialism. Now when I talk about premillennialism, I'm talking about historic premillennialism when I'm defining this. Historic is different from dispensationalism, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment, okay? In other words, premillennialism is Christ initiated the kingdom in the first century, and in the current phase, God is gathering elect people into the church. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, remember, when he came, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is where? At hand. And so, therefore, the kingdom of God is now, according to the premillennial thing, but it's only the first phase of everything. History, then, is going to decline into the Great Tribulation. History is going to decline. So, basically, you're saying is this. 
People are getting worse, and it's getting worse by the minute. Therefore, we're declining to the point to where all the nations and everything else that's going to happen is going to lead us into a great tribulation. That is when the Antichrist, as mentioned, is going to come and he's going to arise. Then, after that, Christ will return to resurrect uh, deceased believers, transform living ones, fight the battle of Armageddon, and establish his thousand-year reign on the earth. Now, understand this, okay? Historic premillennialism did not believe in a rapture. They believed in their Christ is going to return and do exactly what it says, resurrect deceased believers and transform living ones. Everything's going to happen. They're here on earth, and he's going to establish his, his thousand-year reign. So during his rule, then, it says that righteousness and peace will prevail on the earth. This is during the thousand-year reign. And at the very end of the millennium, Satan is going to be loosed and will start a rebellion against Christ, only to have God intervene to destroy Satan, resurrect dead unbelievers, and transform living ones, judge all men, and establish the eternal order. Now notice this. Satan is going to be loosed. Christ's reign gets in trouble. And then God has to intervene and come in and help him. Okay? Just keep thinking. Okay? Now we're looking at post-millennialism. Here's post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, another major view, understands the thousand years in Revelation as symbolizing an extended period of time. Now, folks, understand something real quickly. This is just a side note. This is the only time in the whole of Scripture that a thousand years is ever mentioned, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. The only time. The only time. Do you know that in the book of Revelation, you don't hear about a rapture? You don't hear about a seven-year tribulation. Okay? You don't even hear about a rebuilt temple. It's not mentioned in the book of Revelation. Just a thought. So, thousand years, Revelation, symbolizing extended period of time. Christ established, according to post-millennium, his kingdom in the first century, again, like on millennialism, as a spiritual redemptive reality, which embodied the church. And through the gospel spirit-empowered proclamation, Christianity will grow over time and to become the dominant influence in the world. So this growth will produce increased righteousness, peace, and prosperity, which will prevail for a long time. And at the end of this period, Christ will return, resurrect all men, affect the great judgment, then establish eternal order. This is sometimes called the optimistic view of end times. In other words, the views that I'm giving to you, amillennialism and premillennialism, and in just a moment I'll tell you about dispensationalism, basically you have a pessimistic view of the world. In other words, the world is spiraling down into total defeat and into destruction. Everything is going crazy, and so therefore it takes Jesus to come to take care of everything, and everything's going to be fine. I'm, I mean, postmillennialism is more the positive of this. That since Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, 
the spread of the gospel has gone out through the world and you begin to see things begin to be influenced by Christianity. Now, it may be taking several, you know, thousand years for this to be accomplished, but it, it is getting, not getting better, but it's being more influenced by Christianity. I happen to fall in this camp. And here's the reason why. When you begin to look from the time when Jesus says he's sending out his disciples and they're going to preach and they're going to there, think about what has happened in history. Keep a historical context in your mind. What has happened in history? Where has the gospel gone? Almost to every nation. Almost to every nation. It's gone everywhere. What has it produced since the time of Christ? Don't look at just now, but what has it produced since the time of Christ? You think about this. Missionary organizations, churches set up around the world, hospitals all around the world, universities, colleges, parachurch ministries, tremendous amount, as I was saying, missionary organizations around the world. We have them even here in the United States, and they continue to grow. In fact, I just printed off something. Let me read it to you, okay? It was printed in 2019 on May 9th. It says, Christianity inflicting enormous harm on China warns the Communist Party. Why is it inflicting so much harm? Here it is. In April of 2019... Communist China government associations held a seminar to discuss with the Communist Party members the tremendous harm Christianity is to the atheist nation. And we're discussing ways to stunt its growth. To stunt its growth. Now, if you ever read the autobiography of Hudson Taylor, the one who went and first established the Inland China missions where there were no churches in the 1800s and see what has happened where he had recorded the first the first converts at that time in China it's now it says according to Feng Yang professor of sociology at Purdue University Center of Religion and Chinese Society in 2017 there was anywhere from 93 million to 115 million in Christians in China. It's estimated China is on track to have the largest Christian population in the world by 2030. Now think with me about this. Is that influence getting greater or is it getting worse? It's getting greater. That influence to the point the Communist Party is alarmed. These Christians are going to take over. What happens when the church is persecuted? Dear friends, Christianity grows. Christianity continues to grow. Even in the United States, here's a commercial. Okay? Things are looking pretty tough, and it looks like the left is trying to damage the free speech of Christians and do away with anything in our government that has any kind of Christian influence. You know what that is going to mean. People go, oh, no, oh, oh, great. Because every time...
church experiences persecution, guess what happens? It grows. It grows. And so, therefore, we see within even the world today that we're seeing that there are influences that are growing. India is cracking down like crazy on Christians because it's growing. Africa and Boko Haram is burning churches. They're doing everything and the people are scattering and when they scatter, guess what they do? They continue to preach the gospel. So we're beginning to see these kind of things are continuing on and on and on. But let's go to the next one real quick. This fourth view is called dispensationalism. Okay? It's called dispensationalism. This occurred... This dispensationalism occurred in 1830. That's the only time that it's cropped up its head was in 1830 by a guy by the name of J.N. Darby over in England, part of the Plymouth Brethren movement. He devised a dispensational situation that had never been postulated in all of the 1800 years since Christ had died. It just was not there, folks. And what it says is this. Christ established a church as a new and distinct people when Israel rejected his kingdom offer in the first century. The present age is not the kingdom, but it's a parenthesis in the major plan of God which focuses on Israel. Okay? Think about that statement. The present age is not the kingdom. But didn't Jesus say... The kingdom of God is what? At hand. But according to dispensationalism, no, it's not. Towards the end, it says it will decline into chaos as the church apostatizes. Then Christ will come again to secretly rapture the true believers out of the world. So following the seven-year great tribulation will erupt all over the world as Antichrist arises to dominate the world. And after this, Christ will return visibly, bodily, and majestically to resurrect deceased believers and transform living ones, fight the battle of Armageddon, and establish his 1,000-year political reign on the earth. And during this time, righteousness and peace will prevail throughout the world. And at the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed, organize a rebellion against Christ and his rule, And now God comes again to intervene, destroy Satan, resurrects deceased unbelievers, transforms living ones, and then judges all men and establishes the eternal order. Now, some of you don't don't know what dispensation means. Most everyone, scholars included, believe in dispensation. God will act in dispensations. That's different than dispensationalism. Darby came up with a plan that says reflects the systems dividing history into seven distinct eras, wherein the world operates under distinguishably different God-revealed principles, subject to divine testings, and with each ending in a his, each ending in a historical divine judgment. Now, what does that mean? Basically, like for example, the very first one was. The age of innocency. 
And it goes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Basically, man was innocent. So therefore, God dealt differently in that age with Adam and Eve until they sinned. And then he comes with divine judgment, cast them out of the garden, and then they start a different age. And then once that's done, they start a different age. And when that's done, they start a different age. And when that's done, they start a different age. Right now, we're in the sixth age, according to dispensational theology, the age of grace. This is where grace is going on, and we're receiving grace, and we've done all that kind of stuff, and it's now been going on since the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church, distinct from Israel, according to dispensationalists. So therefore, this age of grace now is going on and has been going on for these last 2,021 years. And we are in it now. The next age is going to be the millennial age. And in fact, this system gets so intricate to the point that in Revelation, you will hear preachers, as I heard the other day, of David Jeremiah teaching on Revelation 2 and 3 about those churches, that those churches represented the different ages, the different times. That's difficult for me to comprehend. And the reason I I don't comprehend that is because when John was writing the book of Revelation, he was writing to seven physical churches that were in existence at that time. And he was telling them what they needed to do. I don't know how you get these ages or these different things out of those churches. I don't see it, and it's not mentioned But according to dispensationalism, it is there. Now, let's look at this dominant views, okay, of this. Here's what most evangelicals have come to believe. Jesus is referring to the events in a distant future which are to occur at the very end of the church age. At the end of the church age. That's what's going to happen. So when Jesus speaks... In Matthew 24, which we're going to learn, he is really talking about the future. That's basically where this is going. Also, Jesus is prophesying events regarding the future tribulation era temple. Now remember, and we'll get into this kind of thing, that you're going to look and see in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus is talking about a temple But we don't have any other place that it talks about having a rebuilt temple, a third temple, because that's just, it doesn't say it, okay? Also, in this, Jesus is speaking of catastrophes befalling non-Jews who persecute the Jews. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about all these things that are going to happen and which we're going to explore in Matthew chapter 24. And also, Jesus is declaring judgments overwhelming the entire world. Now, these views are taught in books such as the late great planet Earth and the Left Behind series. You will have those, and it's taught there. In fact, Time Magazine, when the late great planet Earth sold 35 million copies in 1970, the Left Behind series blew it totally out of the water. You know, with over 100 million copies sold worldwide. And they even, Time Magazine says, there is boom in doom. 
They meant there is boom, boy, someone's pulling in some big bucks overdue. And that's basically where a lot of it, this comes from. There is a lot of things. Folks, here's one of the things they're saying. This is going over the entire world, and this is a system that's going to, to in, is it, that we are in right now, according to these guys, these Left Behind series. Now, here's where the minority report comes in, is this. Jesus is speaking of events that will occur during the lifetime of those hearing his discourse at the end of the Old Covenant age. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we have two covenants, do we not, in the Bible? The Old Testament is a covenant. The New Testament is a covenant. Those are two covenants. And when we think about it and we begin to study, we're going to look and see, did this really end the Old Covenant age in AD 70 when the sacrificial system and the Jewish system was raised to the ground by the Roman armies? We're going to look at that. Here's the minority report, and this is the kind of thing that we're going to look at. Is Jesus talking about his time, or was he projecting it 2,500 years later? Also, Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the permanent removal of the sacrificial system. That's what I just talked about. Now, also, he is this, this is the minority report. Jesus is detailing the disasters that will fall upon the Jews for rejecting him as Messiah, and he's pinpointing his judgments upon Judea in the land of Israel. Now, we're going to look at that, and we're going to go through some of the Old Testament passages that you're going to see that these things are pointing at Judea. With that said, how in the world do we need to interpret then what is happening in these scriptures? I want you to look at it and write these things down, okay? Because we want to look at these things. If you can write them down, please do so. When we come to passages, any passage in the Scripture, we have to look at the historical context of a passage. What is happening in history at that point in time with the Scriptures? For example, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I stated to you the historical context of Psalm 37. When it, when it talked about, fret not for evildoers... Don't fret. Don't get angry over these things. God's got this all in control. The historical context behind that, why King David wrote it, was because all the nations around them had trade routes and had other commodities to them and for them that made them wealthy nations except Israel, and they were having to bring everything in. So therefore, in that historical context, David is getting these people hearing and saying, this makes us so angry. God is our father. God is the true God. How come he has not prospered us like these surrounding nations? And David responds, don't let that mess you up. Now see, when you understand the historical context, you begin to start saying, Oh, okay, now I see what's happening. So when we get into Matthew 24, we're going to look at the historical context. Now, some of you are going to think, preacher, you're not preaching, you're just teaching like a, like a history teacher. True, because we need to know the historical context behind what is going on in Matthew 24. We need to do that. We have to look at the biblical context. What does it say in the biblical context or in this chapter? We just can't lift out a verse 
out of its context and try to make it apply to us today. We have to keep it in the biblical context. And I've told you this before. It's like the guy who's told that was said when he asked, preacher, how do I have a quiet time? He said, well, the best thing you do is just open your Bible and let it drop open and whatever, and put your finger down on it. Whatever it points to, that's what you need to take as a promise from God. Well, he did that, pointed, and it says, Judas went out and hung himself. So therefore, he said, oh, my goodness, really? Let me do this again. Opens it up, hits it in the Psalms, and he puts his finger down, and it says, go and do thou likewise. So you can't do that, lifting things out of context like that. You have to keep everything within its biblical context. Next, what is the documentary context of the text in question. In other words, is this a clear passage or is this an obscure passage? In other words, it's called the analogy of faith. What does the Bible say about that certain subject elsewhere if it's very obscure? That's what we have to understand. What does that mean? So we have to seize upon that which is clear, then move to the obscure. We have to understand it. Now, the other thing is, we have to ask our questions, what are the time event indicators? What's the time of this? What's the timing of this? What's the event that's going around this? We have to look at that, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, okay, as an example, and look into Matthew 24, just quickly, in this. The other thing we have to understand is that when we're looking at scriptures, there's one meaning but there's many applications to that one meaning. We have to look at that. There are many applications to that one meaning. Now, I've told you this before. There's one meaning. I hear it all the time. I want to pull my hair out every time I hear it. We hear this stuff that says, you know, would you pray for me, please? And uh, you're talking to a group of people, and someone inevitably goes, well, yes, we'll pray right now because where two or three are gathered together, there I'll be in their midst. Okay, historically, contextually, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus being in the midst while you're praying. It doesn't. You know what it's saying? It's in the context of Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, it's talking about church discipline. And it's talking about that when you have church discipline, if you agree with your brothers that this person needs to be disciplined, guess what? Jesus is with you. If you've got two or three agreeing, Jesus is with you. Win that decision about that. So now that has one meaning, but it's going to have different applications in that. The other thing that you have to look at is what is the original intent? You ask yourself the question, what was the meaning intended by the original author? Folks, this is nothing new. We had to go through this during the Obama administration because this professor of so-called constitutionality, said the Constitution is fluid. It changes every day. And the argument was, wait a minute, what was the original meaning and the original intent of the authors of our Constitution? And there was this big argument back and forth. So you have to think about those things. Then you have to say, what was the meaning taken by the original audience? As they received the message, what is it? So I want to give you an example. You have Matthew 24, hopefully, open to you. Let's look at this, okay? Look at 1 through 8. I want to read it to you. Jesus left the temple and was going away. 
when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, now understand that Jesus left the temple and went out to the Mount of Olives east, and that's going to be a real big thing when we talk about this in, in a couple of sermons from now. He went out, sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this, must take place, and is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And if we look at verse 9, it says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. In Matthew 24, in the ESV version, which I'm reading from, that word you is used how many times? It's used 24 times. It's a second person plural. To, I mean, used 20 times. So in the, in, in the context of this, and according to the time indicators, to whom was Jesus speaking? Who was it? Well, it's right here. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things be and what will be the sign of your coming. And Jesus answered, who? Them. Who was them? Time indicators has to say when Jesus was talking, when the disciples came and sat and said, when are these things going to be? Jesus said to them. When you see these things. So what's the time indication? He's speaking to the people of that age at that time. At that time. That's what he is saying. That's why we have to understand in biblical hermeneutics, we look at time indicators. Well, however, the fellow that wrote Left Behind, Tim LaHaye, has a prophecy study Bible. But he's also written several other books called Prophecy Unveiled and other things. But on page 1038, notes on 2415, he states the word you must be taken generically, and he's speaking about the whole chapter, as you, the Jewish nation. Okay? So that's a switch, people. That's a switch in audiences from the disciples to the Jewish nation. He says from verse 4 through 34, we should interpret it like that. So can we just look just real quickly what we're going to do then, if you don't mind? Verse 4, you ready? 
See that no one leads you, the Jewish nation, astray. Okay? Verse 6. And you, the Jewish nation, will hear of rumors, of wars and rumors of war. See that you, the Jewish nation, are not alarmed. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you, the Jewish nation, up to tribulation and put you, the Jewish nation, to death. Under that, taking that and changing it to say, this means you, the Jewish nations, from you, the disciples, makes it now completely different than what the text happens to say. It'd be like this. I can pick on these, these ladies that are in here. You know, I, I, here's Angela and Debbie and Susan. I can say, Angela, Debbie, Susan, you need to be here this morning at church. If I said that to you, what would you assume? That you need to be here. Am I talking to you? I am talking to you and Debbie and Susan. Or I can change it. Angela, Debbie, Susan, you teachers need to be here on Sunday morning. Now, how can we interpret that? You're teachers, right? So you're saying now you teachers must be here on Sunday morning because you were teachers. But what if we changed it? What if we said this? You, the teachers, meaning all of Cleveland, all of Tarkenton, and all of Livingston need to be here on Sunday mornings. Now, when we do something like that, people can say, well, you're just talking about you, the teachers. Oh, you can say, oh, all teachers. I think all teachers need to be here. So now we've totally changed the wording just by projecting something different. And when you take something like this and you say, you, the Jewish nation, that's what Jesus meant through the whole verse, then it means you, the Jewish nation, will be put to death. Verse 9. What does that mean? Everybody in the Jewish nation is going to be put to death. Did that happen? Not everybody in the Jewish nation was put to death at all. So we have to take these things along with a biblical hermeneutic. We have to understand them and look at it from that kind of reasoning. And when you go through this whole thing, which we will you will see that when Jesus is talking, he is talking to them, the disciples. And in fact, in chapter 21, when Jesus is giving all his woes as he's in Jerusalem and he's there at the temple and he is casting out all the money changers and all the people who were worshiping, coming and buying and selling, he was giving all these different woes and he was giving all these different things. And it says then, it says the Pharisees realized that they, he was talking about them. Talking about them, the religious leaders of the day. So as we keep things in context, we keep things according to the time indicators and the event indicators, we want to look to see how will that possibly change the way we have interpreted the Olivet Discourse. Is it really 2,500 years into the future? In other words, when Jesus had his little disciples there, 
They're all gathered around him. They're silent. And Jesus says, when you see these things, did one of the disciples bump the other one and go, he's talking about 2,500 years from now. So don't let that disturb you. It's 2,500 years from now. Did they really say that? Or did they know he was talking about them? Them. So we have to keep these things in mind as we go through this verse by verse, section by section, to see whether or not if our, if our interpretation of this is according to a biblical hermeneutic. One of the other things, and I'll close with this. With dispensationalism, understand they are saying and will say that we are the only system, the only view that interprets all prophetic things literally. All others are just made up. All others are just spiritualizing. All others are just liberal and whatever. But yet when you read some of the sections in their own Bibles and in their own footnotes, they will say these things are not to be taken literally. (laughs) So you say, well, what is it? What is it? And in fact, even in one of what the authors says, one of the biggest proponents, Charles Ryrie, uh, you've probably had a Ryrie study Bible, says that everything that we read in, 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 in Revelation we need to take literally. When it says that Jerusalem will be exalted, he literally states that above all the mountains it says, Jerusalem be exalted above the mountains. He believes it's going to be a supernatural thing where the city of Jerusalem is going to be lifted higher than Mount Everest and people are going to dwell there. Now think about that. If, if Jerusalem is exalted and he takes it literally and it's lifted up higher than Mount Everest, what does that do to the rest of the land around it? Destroys it. What about the breathing capacity of people that are higher, that living in Jerusalem that's higher than Mount Everest? What happens there? You begin to start looking at some things like that. And, and when we get to Ezekiel, we'll be talking about that. How those that espouse literalism will take Ezekiel 38 and 39, where it says Jerusalem's going to be attacked by ar- armies that are connecting, that have bows and horses and swords. But if you read late great planet Earth, all of a sudden those bows and horses and arrows and swords are changed to interballistic missiles and helicopters and jets and tanks. But if we look at it and say, we interpret these things literally, I, I don't see tanks in Ezekiel chapter 38. I don't see it. It's not mentioned. Bows and arrows are I know what those are, but I don't think that the writer of Ezekiel, the prophet, and as people are reading that, in that context, in that time, thought, oh yeah, the prophet, he's talking about helicopters. It's not there. So therefore, we, when we come to this, understand things, here's an assignment for you. Go back and start reading from 21 through 25. Read those things, see what the context states. Who is Jesus talking to? Make that your assignment. Get that down. And so I know that some of you are going to want to come ask me questions about, well, what about the beast? What about the rapture? What about the Antichrist? What about the mark of the beast? We'll get to that. 
Okay, we'll get to that, so hold your horses, you know. This is, this is one of the things that, uh, and that was a figurative language that I just used. Okay, which the Bible is made up of as well. That's a figurative thing. So therefore, we will get to some of these things, answer some of these questions, but understand, again, is Jesus coming back? Do I believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely, as does every amillennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist, and dispensationalist. Jesus is coming back. When? We don't know. But he's coming back. That's why we used to always say, get right or get left. You have to be righteous to be able to inherit the kingdom that Christ will bring and establish on the earth. If you are not, if you are lost, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, it's not going to be a good day for you when that happens. Because he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And those that are without the kingdom will experience eternal damnation. Folks, don't let that happen. Place your trust in Jesus Christ understand what's going to take place in the end times whenever they happen. Understand it. So therefore, stand on Christ's righteousness as yours and you know that you will have that final kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this study. We pray as we go throughout the weeks, Lord, that we begin to understand your plan of redemption from Genesis 1 to the end of the book of Revelation. Let us understand it. Let us follow it. Let us look at it. Let us absorb it. And Father, let us give you praise and glory and honor that you have all things in control. Lord, I pray for the one that may be here that does not know Jesus and his righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would open his heart so that they may believe. And Father, that they would see these things, that without Jesus, they are in terrible trouble. So Father, bring them to repentance. Grant them your righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.